You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. If you look at the order Peter gives here, it's implied that repentance is the driving force behind the forgiveness of sins, not the baptism. First, they repent. That's primary. That's causative to conversion. Then comes the baptism. That's consequence, not cause. Repentance brings forgiveness of sins. Baptism is closely connected to repentance because it's a symbol of that repentance and because no truly repented person would refuse baptism. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Of course, this is an age-old debate that has little to no consequence, but it still brings us to consider the difference between cause and effect. For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. We've all learned this. In today's message, Pastor Tom teaches us that water baptism isn't something we do to earn salvation, but it's an act we do in response to it. Have you been saved from your sins? Good. Then naturally, you should want to obey the Word of God by being baptized. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he continues his message. Yes, I am trying to convert you. Salvation is of an individual. God saves individual people. He doesn't save groups. He saves individuals. There's no group decision. If people around you make the decision for Christ, that doesn't count for you. You have to make the decision for Christ. Your parents cannot make you a follower of Christ. They can only pray for you, set an example for you, point the direction, teach you, correct you, but you have to make that decision. Each person, humbled by their own conviction of sin, must declare publicly, I'm no good. I've done a self-evaluation. I've taken a look at myself. It's not because someone else said I'm no good. I've looked at myself, and I see that I'm not good, and I know I need Jesus to save me. Now, nowadays, in American Christianity, baptism doesn't seem so radical of a thing, right? It's just go into water, say a few words, come out. What really changed? It doesn't seem like a big deal. But for these Jews on this day of Pentecost, as Peter was preaching to them, taking a stand to say that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah was a big deal. It was a radical thing. They were basically saying an executed criminal named Jesus from the town of Nazareth is the one that they are declaring to be their king. And that left these Jews who would step forward for water baptism at this point in time, it left them no benefits whatsoever in the world. There were no benefits for them. It's not like they're going to get on the other side and they're going to throw a party that they'd been baptized. No, they would begin to be scrutinized. They'd begin to be looked at. Some of them would begin to be spoken against. Some of them would be put out of their synagogue. Some of them would be ostracized by their family. Some of them may lose their job just for being water baptized. A radical proposition. I wish we had more of a sense of that. Jesus said... In John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You're basically accepting persecution for your remaining days on this planet. For your remaining days living in the United States of America, you've said, it's okay to persecute me. I know where I'm headed. I know who I'm following. It's okay. I'm a follower of Christ. Come what may. So it's a beautiful symbol. It's individual. And though it's a symbol, please understand, please understand, baptism is commanded by Christ. He has told you, if you want to be my follower, after you repent, you have to step up and you have to be water baptized. Is Christ going to count you a follower of his if you refuse the waters of baptism? 
I guarantee you back then, no one was accepted into the church. Nobody was accepted as a Christian unless they were willing to publicly identify with Jesus Christ and his gospel and his cross. You cannot be obedient to Jesus if you are not water baptized. If you are truly converted to Christ, you should want to be baptized. Listen, I'll tell you about myself. I was saved on the college campus. And I'd had what I thought was a baptism. It was an infant baptism. But as I studied scripture, I realized I wasn't really baptized as an infant. That doesn't count. I'm a believer, but I'm an unbaptized believer. And I had been witnessing from my faith. I was not ashamed of my Christianity at all. But I went three, three and a half, almost four years, I think it was, before I was baptized in water. Now, I was saved before that because water baptism doesn't save me. But I realized I need to be baptized. Jesus says this. I mean, I need to do it. I actually wanted to join a church, and the church wouldn't let me join because I hadn't been water baptized. And I kind of had a, you know, a hissy fit. I was all bothered about it. Wait a minute. I've been out there witnessing. I've been doing Bible studies, and you're not going to let me be a member of your church? They said, well, it says in the Bible you need to be baptized. Like, Well, I can't argue with that. So I submitted to it. But before I submitted to it, I realized, why am I arguing with this? It's my privilege to declare my faith in water baptisms. It is a privilege to say the old Tom dies, bring forth the new Tom. And so I submitted to this and I did that. And you need to do the same. If you've been waiting and wondering, you need to submit to what Jesus Christ said. After you repent, you need to be baptized. That's what he said to do. On that day, how many souls were saved? 3,000, right? How many souls were baptized? I'll give you the answer. It's not 2,999. All 3,000 were baptized. It was required of everybody. Baptism was no afterthought. Baptism was no side issue. Today, you go to some churches, you don't even know. They don't celebrate the Lord's Supper, and you don't even hardly hear about baptism. I'm not sure that's a church. If they're not doing what Christ says, is that really a church? If you're not willing to be water baptized publicly, no one on the inside of the church or on the outside of the church should take your profession of faith seriously. It should be evident to everybody that baptism must never be administered to somebody before they believe. Isn't that obvious here? The order is crystal clear. Repent, then be baptized. Please notice what it does not say. It does not say, be baptized, and when you grow up, repent. It doesn't say that. The idea that you would baptize your children or baptize your infants or baptize your babies before they have repented in hopes that one day they will repent, in hopes that one day they'll be confirmed in their faith, is completely foreign to Peter's instructions and to the meaning of Christian baptism. I would hope that would be obvious to anybody reading these words. I would hope you'd be able to put out of your mind denominational tradition and read the text to see what it says in front of you. Isn't that obvious to you? You guys are looking up at me. Look down at the text and read it. Isn't the order obvious? Repent and be baptized. It's not so hard. What comes first? Repentance. What comes second? Baptism. Baptism is not the declaration of a parent's faith. It is not like circumcision, which God commanded parents to do under the old covenant. We are not under the old covenant. There is nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament, where God commands parents to baptize their babies. There was in the old covenant, and it was only the sons because it was circumcision. 
There was no initiatory right for the female in the old covenant. In the new covenant, it's different. It's not the same as the old covenant. Men and women, one by one, after they repent, then they get water baptized. Because it symbolizes the washing away of sins. Why submit to a symbol of washing away from sins if your sins haven't been washed away? Why say my old life is gone and my new life is here if you're just hoping that will happen for your children? Makes no sense at all. There are people whose conscience are so bound by infant baptism, they've even left our church so they could go and they could have their children baptized by another denomination. And I remember asking one guy, I said, are you willing to read a critique of infant baptism because I got a great book? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said no. Because his, his mind and his heart were attached to the denomination and to the practice rather than to what the word of God said. There is no command, no injunction, no exhortation, no example of baptizing children in the New Testament. It's just not there. I remember when Dr. MacArthur was debating with Dr. Sproul. They were great friends. And it was over baptism. You could still get the debate. And I remember how Dr. MacArthur started his debate after R.C. went into a number of what I would call gymnastics all over the Bible to try to make it all make sense. MacArthur just stood up and he said, the thing that is wrong about, this is not a quote, but it's pretty close to it. The thing that is wrong with infant baptism is it's not in the Bible. (laughs) It's a great way to start a debate, isn't it? you've, You've taken a lot of time to tell us why, but actually if they wanted us to do it, they would have told us. But they didn't. Baptism is not the hope of future faith. Baptism is not the hope of influencing people that they might come to faith. Baptism is not placing people in a community of faith, whatever that means. It is the declaration of present faith. And if you're not old enough to understand, and you're not old enough to repent in any way that people can tell, you're not old enough for baptism. And that seems pretty clear to me. Now, one more thing we need to cover before we move on from baptism. Peter did not say baptism causes conversion. Peter did not say, as some read this verse, that baptism causes forgiveness of sins. Please look at that again. People have read this verse wrongly. Even some cults will base on this verse, an insistence that if you're not water baptized, you are not born again. Even to a large extent, the Catholic Church teaches this. They believe you have to have water baptism or your sins are not forgiven. They require water baptism as a right in order for someone to be saved. If you said you were saved and were not baptized and you died in between there, you would not go to heaven in their view. That idea is associated with a false doctrine called baptismal regeneration. That is, rather than the Holy Spirit causing your regeneration, rather than the Word of God being the agent of your regeneration, the waters of baptism through some power of the priesthood causes you to be born again. That is phony baloney. And if you know how the Holy Spirit works and you know and have tasted the power of God, you know that there is no external right that can happen to your body that is going to change your heart and make you godly before Christ. 
And that's not what Peter meant by these words, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The Greek preposition used in that phrase, it's uh, the preposition ice, and it's translated for, F-O-R, can mean either for the purpose of, or sometimes it can mean because of, because of. And that seems to be a better fit for this translation, or on account of the forgiveness of your sins. If you look at the order Peter gives here, it's implied that repentance is the driving force behind the forgiveness of sins, not the baptism. First, they repent. That's primary. That's causative to conversion. Then comes the baptism. That's consequence, not cause. Repentance brings forgiveness of sins. Baptism is closely connected to repentance because it's a symbol of that repentance and because no truly repented person would refuse baptism. And that's why it's so closely connected to it. If someone said, I've repented, but I don't want water baptism, we would doubt that they've really repented. It's not that the water baptism does anything. It's that the repentance does something. Whenever you come to a verse of Scripture that's difficult to interpret or that seems to contradict other Scripture or that seems to to not say what sound teaching has always said, the best thing to do at that point in time is to do what theologians call the analogy of Scripture, employ the analogy of Scripture. That is, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Put them side by side. Get out your Bible and make sure one verse is not saying something different from another. Put them together and everything will become clear. A lot of cults, they have this practice. They go from unclear verses to deny clear verses rather than doing what anybody would want to do if they were trying to understand the Bible and not manipulate the Bible. And that is start with uh, clear verses and use the clear verses to interpret the ones that are less clear. Doesn't that make sense? If you were listening to someone talk and they made a clear declaration and then they said something that you're not quite sure what they meant by that, wouldn't you interpret what you're not sure they meant by the clear rather than the other way around? But when it comes to God, they decide, let's take the more obscure thing and give it a little bit of twist and then deny the plain teaching of Scripture. And when we turn to the rest of Scripture, do we find anywhere that we're saved by good works? Do we find anywhere that we're saved by some religious rite, by some external thing? No, we do not. We turn to Galatians 2.16. It says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. There's not an action that you can do to save yourself. Or we turn to Titus 3.5, which we mentioned. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. Not through baptism, not through communion, not through this, not through that. It's just what he will do by his grace. Romans 11.6 says, if salvation is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't mix grace with works. You can't say we're saved by grace and also by works because then grace is gone. Grace has to be apart from any works. It says that in Romans 3.28 also. In fact, if you go to Luke's writings, and that's a great way to do kind of a study on this because Luke wrote the book of Acts, and so compare the gospel of Luke with the book of Acts and find out what it says about the forgiveness of sins. How do I get forgiveness of sins? And you do that study, you'll find out that there are times where repentance is required for the forgiveness of sins, and there's no mention of water baptism in those passages at all, which would be crazy if you had to be water baptized to get the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you an example. Luke chapter 24 and verse 47. Jesus is talking. He says, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all of the nations beginning from Jerusalem. No mention of water baptism, but there is a mention of repentance. Or 
Go forward from chapter 2 and look in chapter 3 in Acts, verse 19. And it says there, therefore, repent and return. Those are synonyms. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Again, mentions nothing about the requirement of water baptism. Or you go to Acts chapter 5 and verse 31, and it's talking about Jesus, and they're preaching again, and it says, Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and a savior to grant repentance to the nation of Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, no water baptism. And you just keep going through there again and again and again, and you see the requirement of water baptism is not there. Therefore, it cannot be essential to the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you an analogy. Saying water baptism saves you is like saying a wedding ring marries you. Now, I've done a lot of weddings, and it's a good thing to bring your wedding ring on wedding day. I can tell you that. You probably get a look from the bride if you forget that. But you can be pronounced man and wife without a wedding ring. You do realize that, right? You can go to the justice of the peace and not have a token and still be pronounced married. It's a symbol, guys. It's a symbol. How God works to change someone is on the inside. The water on the outside is a symbol. In fact, as you put this heresy to the test even more, and you study more deeply in the book of Acts, you can see that there was a man who was baptized and remained unsaved in Acts chapter 8, verses 13, and compare that with verse 21. And his name is Simon Magus. And uh, Peter basically says, you have no part or portion in this matter of salvation. And... In the book of Acts, you can find a man who is not yet water baptized and was already saved, and his name is Cornelius, and you can read about him in Acts chapter 10. So what does that tell you? Water has no power. The Holy Spirit has the power. Do you remember even what John the Baptist said? I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who is mightier than I, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire, right? Water doesn't really do that much. The Holy Spirit does. Jesus, who condemned the ritualism of the Jews for trusting in their circumcision and trusting in their external washings and all of the things that they did, and he constantly condemned them for having an outward show of religion and not having the real heart of God in them, would hardly turn right around and then assign a new outside ritual to save his followers. That would make no sense at all. In fact... If you want to study this even more, if you go to Peter's first epistle, Peter clarifies what he himself means by baptism in chapter 3 and verse 21. He says this, now listen to this, corresponding to that, now he's talking about Noah's the ark and the ark passing through the waters that happened with the universal flood. Corresponding to, to Noah's flood, baptism now saves you. And then he adds this. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. That is repentance. He tells you baptism saves you, not the outward right, not the water on the skin, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. But what really saves you now is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Paul made it very clear that no ritual on the outside of your body can save your soul. He wrote that performing water baptisms wasn't really much of a part of his ministry as an apostle at all. In fact, 
when they were boasting about which apostle or which great name or which great preacher that they were behind in Corinth. He wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he said, you know, some of these people are saying, I am of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of this person or that person, and there were factions and divisions in their church. And he said, he actually wrote this, he said, I thank God, this is 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Now, imagine if you could only be saved through water baptism. What Paul would be saying is, I thank God none of you got saved. It's ludicrous, isn't it? And then he remembered an interesting insight into how the inspiration of Scripture happens. And he says, except Crispus and Gaius. And then he says, oh, and there was one other household. And he remembers doing that. So you're going to look in vain all over your New Testament to see salvation by water baptism or forgiveness of sins by water baptism. So we don't get baptized to get saved. Why do we get baptized? We get baptized to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. We get baptized to tell the world that we are saved, and so they will know that. I want to ask you a question. Have you been baptized in water after you repented of your sin? Some of you were baptized when you were younger, like me. And you might say, I don't need to be baptized. I've already been baptized. Does God count that as a baptism? If the order is clear, repent and be baptized, and that is not the order you followed, then you're unbaptized. My mother went through this very difficulty because she was prayed for by all of the Presbyterian missionaries in the entire country of Iran. Her father, her biological father, was best friends with the Shah of Iran. And uh, so she had some very high up connections in that country before the Muslim takeover. And at her christening, at her baby baptism, all the missionaries in the entire country, as the story has been handed down to me, came and prayed over her that uh, she would be saved. And they administered a Presbyterian baptism. Now, Presbyterians don't believe that baptism saves you, but they do believe in infant baptism. Well, mom always treasured that story, and after she got saved, she realized it was probably the prayers of those missionaries that led to her coming to faith, and so she rejoiced in that. Mom and dad went to a Methodist church uh, growing up, and then they switched over to a Presbyterian church later, and she started coming here, and we started teaching, you have to be baptized as a believer. And she went to her pastor at that time, sort of an overlapping of two churches at that time, and she went to that pastor, and she said... I want to be baptized as a believer. And the pastor said, that's fine, Lana, but you'll have to renounce your first baptism. And he used that word, renounce. And that hit her conscience hard because she couldn't renounce what God had done in her life, you see. And so she came to me and she said all that. And it took a while, but I just I taught her. I said, you, you can't renounce a baptism that never happened because it's not a baptism. You can thank God for all of those missionaries who prayed for you. You can thank God for your Christian parents. You can thank God for all of that. But you have never been baptized, and you need to be. And so we had the joy of baptizing her at Faith Bible Church in Elkridge, Maryland, and their baptismal there, and it was a glorious day. And there are other people in the congregation who have gone through that, that same thing. And it's a process that you have to go through in your conscience, but the Word of God should be that which controls your conscience. Actually, with the sick, they did pour. When they were too sick to be immersed, they did compromise a little, and they did do pouring in the early church. We read about that in church history. But the symbolism of immersion is it's still very important. So I'm going to leave it there and leave that to your conscience. You should be baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should not delay 
And we'll leave that as the application for you. Whereas you guide your children, when are they old enough to be baptized? When you know that their decision is a life decision. And that's why the younger children, it's harder to tell. And there's no guidance on the actual age for that. But each of you needs to think about being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ and making a public declaration of your Christian faith, okay? Father in heaven, thank you that we're to be water baptized. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to understand the beauty about our relationship to you and our relationship to one another and about that wonderful work of your Holy Spirit that you do inwardly, which is the real work that we covet and we're grateful for, that forgiveness of sins that we'll get to talk about next time. Pray it now in Christ's name. Amen. Have you given your life to Christ? If so, have you been baptized in water? As Pastor Tom taught us in today's message, this is an ordinance given to us in the Bible that every believer must obey. If you haven't yet been baptized, we encourage you to submit to the Lord and obey His command. As we learned today, it's not about working for salvation, but it's about responding in obedience to the one who washed your sins away. Discover Hope is a listener-supported ministry, and we'd like to offer you the opportunity to be a part of sharing the gospel message. Would you join us in praying for our listeners? Pray that the love and grace of Jesus will be evident in each new broadcast and that many would come to know the hope of salvation. Thanks for praying. If you feel led to contribute financially to this ministry as well, you can do so by visiting hopebible.org and clicking the giving tab at the top of the page. We appreciate every amount given and use it to continue producing the messages of Pastor Tom Leake that you hear on Discover Hope. The past few messages, we've been learning about true conversion. A true conversion to Christianity includes several different components as found in Acts chapter 2. So far, we've learned about the gospel message, conviction of sins, genuine repentance, and the sign of water baptism. Join us next time on Discover Hope as Pastor Tom teaches us about the fifth component, the forgiveness of sins. There's much more to learn from the book of Acts, so we hope you'll tune in next time. If you'd like to listen again to today's teaching or share it with friends and family, you'll find it online at hopebible.org. Thanks for joining us on Discover Hope.